Appreciate JT filling in for, uh, for me last week, and uh, especially appreciated uh, the way that he walked through Genesis chapter 40 with Joseph interacting with his fellow prisoners, interpreting dreams, and the stress that he laid on uh, what God was doing with Joseph and for Joseph during his time of waiting. Uh, that becomes significant because in chapter 41, which is where we are today, the time of waiting in one sense sort of comes to an end. Joseph begins to turn a corner, actually not Joseph, but God brings Joseph out of his lowly condition and raises him up to uh, new prominence, and that's what we want to look at today. This is a very lengthy chapter, and we're not going to read the whole thing verse by verse, a lot of what you have in this chapter is a repetition of these two dreams that Pharaoh has. It's repeated three different times. And so for our purposes, I'm going to read verses 1 through 16, and then we'll pause and we'll work through the chapter uh, drawing attention to other passages as we move along. So Genesis chapter 41, verses 1 through 16. The theme, I think, of this chapter is how God rescues His people out of their affliction. So listen and follow along. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream." Now in the morning his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream, and just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and for the kindness that you have bestowed on us to give us a written record of your dealings with your people and your faithfulness to bring about a Savior to redeem humanity from our sin 
and from the judgment that we deserve. We ask that as we read about this episode, as we think through and discuss what it is that you do here to reverse Joseph's fortunes, that you would keep us mindful of the fact that these things have been written for our encouragement so that we would not grow weary and lose heart. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Amen. Genesis 41, God rescues his people out of their affliction. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do right off the bat. Hold your place here in Genesis 41 and go to Acts chapter 7. For our purposes today, I think that what Stephen says in his speech in Acts chapter 7 is going to provide something of a guide or a template for how we think through this episode in Joseph's life. Chapter 7, skip to verse 10. Actually, let's pick up at verse 9. Acts chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. This is Stephen giving a rough overview of the history of Israel, and he gets to the period related to Joseph, and he says this in Acts 7, 9 and 10, "...the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt." Yet God was with him, and then here's the key, verse 10, and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. That statement in verse 10 encapsulates everything that's in chapter 41. God rescued Joseph from his afflictions and granted him favor in the sight of Pharaoh. So the portion that we read in Genesis 41, you can go back to Genesis 41 now. The portion that we read, the first 16 verses, presents the dilemma. Pharaoh has a dream, and he doesn't know what to make of the dream. No one can tell him what the dream means. But the cupbearer now, two years after he was released from prison, remembers, oh yeah, that Joseph guy. He knows how to interpret dreams, and so he mentions him to Pharaoh. Pharaoh brings Joseph in. Joseph listens to the dream that Pharaoh has, and then Joseph interprets the meaning of the dream. And essentially, both dreams have the one same meaning. The thin cows eating the fat cows, and the, uh, the weak, sickly ears eating the full, healthy ears, that's a sign that there are going to be seven years of good harvest in Egypt, followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph's recommendation is then, because we are coming up on seven years of fullness, you need to take advantage of that and prepare for the seven years of famine. So Joseph hears the dream, he interprets, and he gives a course of action to Pharaoh to follow. All right, so here's what we're going to do as we move through this chapter three main points that I want to try to get across. Number one, God rescues Joseph. God rescues Joseph. Number two, God rewards Joseph with favor. And number three, we'll see towards the end of the chapter, that Joseph remains faithful, and then you could put in parentheses, but unfulfilled. God rescues Joseph, God rewards Joseph with favor, and then Joseph remains faithful but unfulfilled.
So, Acts chapter 7, Stephen says that it was God that rescued Joseph from all of his afflictions. We don't get that kind of a statement from the narrator in Genesis 41, but he makes it abundantly clear that that actually is what's happening. God is always the main actor in every passage of Scripture. It's always about God. All right. Here are the ways that the, the author clues us into the fact that this is God doing this for Joseph. Number one, and I'm going to try to take it in the order in which it comes. Number one... When Joseph comes before Pharaoh and Pharaoh says to Joseph, I've heard that you can interpret dreams, Joseph says, it's not in me, God is going to give the interpretation. So Joseph, before he ever hears the dream, as a statement of faith, says, God is the one who's going to reveal the insight necessary for this dream. God is the one who's going to work in this situation. Two, after Joseph hears the dream, he says to Pharaoh, not once but twice, God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do, meaning the dream that Pharaoh has was given to him by God. All right, so this chain of events that takes place in chapter 41 with Joseph languishing in prison and then unexpectedly being called out of prison to come stand before the king of Egypt, all of this happened because God caused it to happen. God gave Pharaoh a dream that he could not answer or understand. God gave Pharaoh a dream that none of his attendants could interpret. God gave Joseph the ability to interpret the dream, all of this is what God is doing to bring Joseph out of prison. God rescues Joseph. This is not Joseph stumbling into good luck after a string of bad luck. This is not coincidence. This is not just fortuitous in the human sense. This is not karma. Joseph suffered well, and so now he's going to get the rewards. This is none of that. This is God doing with Joseph what he intends to do from start to finish. God rescues Joseph. God is the one who's ordering these events. And the reason, one of the other reasons that this is important, and this is by implication, the, the chapter that J.T. had last week, chapter 40, ends, well, it ends with the last verse in chapter 40, verse 23. After the cupbearer, after his dream comes true, Joseph tells the cupbearer, hey, when you get to Pharaoh's house, mention me to him. Get me out of here. And chapter 40 ends in verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Chapter 41, but God didn't forget Joseph. For two full years, God had His eye and His hand on Joseph. The frustration that comes through in these scenarios or these situations is what was alluded to last week. 
If God is watching, if God is keeping His hand on His people, on His sons, on His daughters, on His children, why does it take so long to see the results? Why does it take so long to be brought up out of the pit? Why the wait? Why the delay to be brought out of prison to be presented before Pharaoh? You know what the answer is? We don't know. We're not told. Later in this passage, we're told that when Joseph goes to stand before Pharaoh, he is 30 years old. Do you remember how old Joseph is when he's introduced to us? All the way back in, what was that, chapter 37? 17, I heard someone say it. 17 years old. He's now 30 years old. How much time has transpired with Joseph in Egypt, much of that being mistreated and wrongfully imprisoned? How many years? 17 to 30. 23. Is that right? 17 to 30? 13. 13. Listen, math is not my strong suit, so if one of you are going to speak up who also are not always solid in math, you're right, and now my ministry is going to be scrutinized in a worse way. <laughs> Thirteen years. Thirteen years Joseph has waited. Thirteen years Joseph has been mistreated and understood. Thirteen years, even when things were going well when he was in Potiphar's house before the false accusation, Joseph was still a slave. And this is why a passage like 1 Peter 5 that we read earlier in the morning is so helpful and beneficial to us. What does Peter say to other Christians who are suffering and who are being afflicted unjustly for their faith? Peter says in chapter 5, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that He may exalt you at the proper time. And he says later, after you have suffered for a little while, God will strengthen and establish and restore. How long is a little while? Well, it probably depends on your perspective, right? If you happen to be eternal and infinite like God, how long is a little while? Peter says elsewhere to God, a thousand years are like a day, and a day like a thousand years. That's a, a thousand years in God's mind is a little while. Right now, some of you are thinking, Merritt, please. Don't encourage us anymore. <laughs> but the view of Scripture is always that you have to see life through God's perspective. The Old Testament and New Testament writers, Jesus Himself is saying 
The difficulty for people like us who are time-bound and space-bound is that we are so limited in what we can see and know. We have so little understanding of what eternity will bring that if we really knew all of this that we experience right now would just seem like a blip on the radar compared to eternity. Your suffering for a little while may last for a week, depending on what the suffering involves. Your suffering for a little while, in another situation, may last a year. Your suffering for a little while may last ten years. Or your suffering for a little while may last the rest of your life. But the reason that we're given Genesis 41 is so that we can see in, small, condens- in a small condensed way the principle that God does not forget His people who are suffering and who are languishing, and that God in His perfect timing, according to His will, will certainly raise His people back up out of their suffering and out of their affliction. God will do that for you. God is rescuing Joseph. And notice that with the rescue, this is point number two, that God rewards Joseph with favor. Skip down with me in Genesis 41, down to verse 37. Listen to what happens. Joseph gives the interpretation to the dream, and along with the interpretation of the dream, actually gives Pharaoh a solution to the impending crisis. Verse 37, now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot, and they proclaimed before Joseph, Bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph, and pardon the butchery here, Zephanath Paneah, and he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Let me sum up. Joseph goes from being a prisoner with no identity, no name recognition, to becoming prime minister of Egypt in the span of a couple of hours. How does that happen? Well, if God is the one who's doing the rescuing, God must be the one who is also doing the rewarding. 
mean, that's what Stephen says in Acts chapter 7. God rescued him from all of his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the eyes of Pharaoh. Even Pharaoh's response to Joseph's word and plans, even that was given by God so that Joseph could be raised up to rule over Egypt. This would be like a prisoner today being called in to the White House and the president saying to this prisoner fresh off the cell block, hey, we're dealing with some inflation trouble. What should we do about it? And the prisoner says, oh, well, here's how you handle inflation. Okay, good, you go do it. That doesn't happen. And Joseph is not just given administrative responsibilities, Joseph is given unique authority such that as Joseph rides around through Egypt in Pharaoh's chariot, do you hear what people are calling out and saying? Bow the knee. This is God's lowly, afflicted servant who's now been raised to a place of prominence and exaltation and glory to reign over the land of Egypt. Does that sound familiar in any sort of way? This is exactly what happens to the ultimate servant and the ultimate ruler, Jesus Christ. Jesus descends, the eternal Son takes on a human nature. He humbles Himself. He is humiliated by taking instead of the glory that is His, by taking human nature. He descends, Paul says in Ephesians 4, to the lowest parts of the earth. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, we're told. He's rejected by His brothers. He's rejected by the rulers. He is rejected and He suffers even to the point of death, but because God has not abandoned His servant, the servant who is left to languish in the grave is raised up again. And is raised not only out of the grave, but raised to be seated at the right hand of the Father to rule and reign over the entire earth. God did that. Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. Isaiah 52.13 says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. That's at the end of Isaiah 52. Before we get to Isaiah 53, you remember what's in Isaiah 53? The suffering servant. My servant, the Lord says, who we know is Jesus, the Son, He's going to be exalted. He's going to be lifted up. But before that happens, He's going to suffer shame and humiliation. But He will be raised up and exalted. Philippians 2, what does Paul say? That because Jesus humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, for this reason, God did what? highly exalted Him and gave Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Amen. 
You hear what's going on with Joseph as he's riding and people are calling out, bow the knee to this man. You understand that's what's going to happen with Jesus who's been raised and exalted. There's coming a time when Jesus is going to make his way through this earth and everyone is going to be told, bow the knee to your king. But it gets even better than that. Because we who have been made part of Christ... We who follow in His footsteps, our lives follow the model or the pattern or the template that Christ Himself has laid out for us, which means this, that we will certainly suffer in the here and now. We will suffer in the short term. We will be people who, like Jesus, are acquainted with grief. We will know sorrow. We will know sickness. We will know death. But because we know Jesus, not only are we going to share in His afflictions, we're going to share in His exaltation and His glory. Romans 8, 17. If we are children, Paul says, we are heirs also, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Do you hear that? You want the glory that has been promised to you? You don't get the glory. You don't get the raising up and the exaltation. You don't get the reward without the suffering. Paul says in 2 Timothy that if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. And Jesus Himself in Revelation chapter 2 says this, He who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end. By the way, let me pause right there. That overcoming phrase, oftentimes in the opening part of Revelation, has to do with going to your death as a martyr. That's what it means to overcome. He who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. I don't care what your affliction is right now. If it's sickness, if it's disease, if it's broken and dysfunctional relationships, if it's unmet expectations, if it's ridicule because of your faith, whatever your affliction is, I can tell you two, maybe three things. I'm sure I could tell you more, but let me try to keep it short. One, God sees every minute of your affliction. He has not abandoned you. And number two, because even your affliction has been purchased by Christ, you are guaranteed that every bit of your sorrow and suffering and affliction is going to count 
for something great and glorious in eternity. God is going to raise His people up in the same way that He raised Joseph up, in the same way that He raised Jesus Christ up, and we one day will see ourselves being raised up out of our life of affliction and sorrow to enjoy the bliss of ruling and reigning with Christ in a perfect new world order. Don't give up. You have need of endurance, says the author to the Hebrews. You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive what has been promised. And then number three, God rescues Joseph, God rewards Joseph, and Joseph in this rescue and reward, remains faithful but unfulfilled. Notice what happens. As Joseph receives favor from Pharaoh and is rewarded with a new place of authority, with new privileges, with new comfort, with new wealth and ease, what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh says, it's not enough that we give you a political position. We're going to make you one of us. I'm going to give you an Egyptian name. I'm going to give you an Egyptian wife, and not just any Egyptian wife, but this is going to be a power marriage, right? I'm going to marry you into a prominent family in Egypt so that by position and by marriage, you are safe and secure in the ruling class. Notice, though, a little bit later in the chapter what Joseph does. Skip down with me to verse 49. Joseph receives all these rewards, and on top of the rewards, Joseph is wildly successful in executing the plan that he presented to Pharaoh. So, in verse 49, thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. That success at the workplace. But then notice, verse 50. Now, before the year of the famine, so we're coming to the end of the seven years of plenty, of richness, of fullness, and we're about to go into the hard years, as an added bonus, so to speak, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, For, he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Let me tell you why this is significant. When Joseph receives favor from Pharaoh and accolades and reward, and Pharaoh says, Joseph, you're now one of us. There's always the temptation for God's people, because we are so weak and fickle, right? We are desperate for God when we're in the pit. We're calling out, we're crying out, but you get me out of the pit for more than five minutes, all right, Lord, thanks, I'll see you later. 
and I'm out. Joseph gets all these rewards. How is Joseph going to handle this? How is he going to handle going from being a prisoner to being prime minister? How is he going to handle now all of the accolades and the privileges and the benefits of being number two in Egypt? Well, we see it when he names his sons. Pharaoh is trying to make Joseph like one of them, but Joseph is intent to make sure that he retains his identity as a Hebrew. So although Pharaoh gives to Joseph an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife, when Joseph, when Joseph comes time to build his own family, he gives to his sons not Egyptian names, but Hebrew names. It's that whether in prison or whether in the highest halls of authority and power, Joseph has determined that he will remain faithful to his God and the God of his fathers. Now, here's the catch. When Joseph names his sons Manasseh and Ephraim, there is a hint, and this is, let me admit, this is sort of my reading into what's going on here. I think there is a hint of longing that Joseph gives voice to in the naming of his sons. He names his first son something like forgetfulness. Why? Because Joseph says, the Lord has caused me to forget all of my sorrow and afflictions, and my father's family. Do you hear that? That's a man who still knows that he was rejected by his family. And that's a man who, even though he names his son forgetfulness, seems to have an uncanny ability to remember what it is that he experienced years ago, right? If I go to my wife and I say, uh, you know, we're having a girl, and we're talking about names, and I say, I, I'd like to name our, our, uh, our daughter Susie. Oh, well, that's a nice one. Why Susie? Well, Susie was my hardest breakup, <laughs> and I'm over her, and I, I just want to go on record. I'm over Susie. Let's name our daughter Susie. Wife would look at me and you say that you want to name our daughter Susie because that was the bad breakup you had back in high school, and you're going to name her Susie because you're over Susie. That's right. My wife would probably look and say, but are you, though? He names his son forgetfulness, saying, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. In one sense, that's true because of the blessings and the reward and the renewal that God has given to Joseph. But on the other hand, there still is that bad taste in his mouth. And then the second son, Ephraim, he says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Do you hear that? You give Joseph whatever rewards you want. You give him whatever position, any income, any responsibilities. There is no changing the fact that Egypt is not the promised land. 
Egypt, with God's blessings, will remain the land of my affliction. And here's the, here's the rub. This is the Christian life in this particular period of time. This is it in a nutshell. Because of the fact that we have been reconciled to God, we know joys and comfort and peace that we can't get anywhere else because of God's favor resting on His people. And yet, because of the fact that we still run headlong into affliction and suffering and sorrow, on the one hand, we know that we are being rescued and favored by God, but we can't escape the fact that we are still in the land of affliction. We have still not yet made it home. All of these dreams that Joseph is interpreting have come true. What about Joseph's dreams? Remember, all of this got started back in chapter 37 because Joseph had two dreams. When are his dreams going to be fulfilled? When are God's promises to him going to be made good? So we transition to the Lord's Supper, and part of what we do at a time like this is we take the truth of Genesis 41 and we say that there are two ways that we can think about this communion, sharing in this token meal together. Number one... It is a reminder to us that God has rescued us and He has rewarded us and favored us with His Son that we know through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We know that God sees us and loves us and cares for us. We know that. But we also know that for all of the joy and all of the comfort and blessings that God gives us in this life, this life still leaves us wanting more. And Christian, it is okay to walk faithfully with Jesus Christ, to be thankful for the blessings that He has given you, and still to acknowledge that you want more. That is okay. In fact, that is right and good and healthy. We are not meant to be satisfied in this broken world. We will not, cannot be satisfied in this broken world. But we get a little taste, a little reminder today that God has given us enough of a taste of the future glories to come for us to rest assured that He will one day give us ultimate, complete perfect joy and satisfaction that will never be taken away from us again. God will rescue His people. Turn with me to Isaiah 55. If you know the Joseph story, Joseph stores up all the food, the famine comes, the people begin to run out of food, and they cry out to Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh says, go to Joseph, and whatever Joseph tells you to do, do it. And so the people begin to go to Joseph, and Joseph, out of the storehouses that he has built up, begins to provide food for the people who are starving. But food in the midst of a famine is not cheap. So the people come to Joseph, and they have to pay him for the food that they're going to receive so that they can survive. It's the ultimate captive market. So on the one hand, Joseph is able to provide these starving, desperate people with the food that they need to live and to make it to see another day, but it comes at a cost. Listen then to what the Lord says in Isaiah 55 and compare the bread that we're offered from the Lord to the bread that Joseph offered the people in Egypt. Isaiah 55 verse 1. Ho, or hey, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. Joseph fed the people under his care for a cost. God in His grace and mercy is so full and so generous that He says, I'll feed you for free. I'll cover the cost. So Jesus says in John 6, Your fathers ate bread from heaven in the wilderness, but I'm the true bread. I'm the bread that comes down out of heaven to feed you and sustain you so that you will never be hungry again. What does that kind of food cost? It costs you and me absolutely nothing. It costs Christ His life. So as we partake in this Lord's Supper, we are reminded that as God's people, we have been promised that the Lord will faithfully sustain and provide for His people through all of our time of wandering, through all of our time of sorrow and affliction, and that this little token taste, token meal, is itself a reminder of the fact that there's coming a day when the reward will be given to us, and rather than just having a taste, we're going to have a feast. Men, would you come forward to help distribute the elements?
Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. This is David writing. He says, I waited intently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. As you prepare to take part in the bread, the body of Christ, consider and remember that ultimately our position was exactly like David, only more so, that we were wallowing in the muck and the mire of our sin, that we were in misery and despair. But by God's grace and mercy, He listened to the cries of a desperate people asking for salvation and asking for forgiveness, and He gave it freely. He gave it because He sent His Son to live the very shame and humiliation that we encounter so that He could triumph over it. So take and eat, remembering that His body has been given for your healing. The last verse in Psalm 40, verse 17, says this, Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Take and drink, knowing that the Lord sees all of your sorrows and afflictions and has covenanted to purchase you out of that sorrow. Bow with me in prayer. Father, how good and gracious You are to people who are weak and needy. You do not despise us. You do not look down upon us. You actually reconcile us to Yourself, and You invite us to call You Father and to come and to lay our concerns at Your feet. Father, for all of the trouble and the sorrow and the anguish that we know here at Edgewood, both seen and unseen, we ask that Your presence would be the source of our strength, that You would provide joy and encouragement that You would help us to count the promises of God unshakable because they have been bought by the life and death of Jesus Christ. Thank You for this time that we've had to gather together and to worship You in Your mercy and in Your grace. We pray this in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And I'll invite you to stand as we close with a song that is uh, very special at a time like this. And this song is actually actually comes from Psalm, verse, uh, psalm chapter 34, which is uh, a psalm of David when he, uh, he was pretending to basically be insane before Abimelech, uh, who drove him away, and, and, and he left. So this was at a time when David had just killed Goliath, and, and uh, Saul was seeking to kill him. And so he was trying to act crazy to so where they would just get him away, get him away, so they wouldn't capture him. So he was at a desperate time of need, just like Jonathan spoke of. And this is what he reads, or this is what he writes. I will extol the Lord at all times. 
His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glory, glory, I'm sorry, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look at him or look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. Let's fear him today, amen, and rejoice. Taste and see. I'm just going to ask you to repeat after me as I sing. Just repeat after. Taste and see. Taste and see. Oh, taste and see. Taste and see. That He is good. That He is good. That He is good. That He is good. Sound great. Blessed. Blessed are they. full of grace full of peace and full of hope he's our God the Holy 
one here to speak his words of life and surround us with his love here with healing in his wings taste and see oh taste and let's sing it again there full of mercy full of power full of blessings full of grace full of peace and full of hope is our god the holy one his words of life and surround us with his love here with healing in his wings taste and see oh taste and see Sing it out to him, and he's worthy of all of our praise. And he's worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our praise. Here to fill our hungry souls, taste and see. He's worthy of our love. And he's worthy of all He is worthy of our song Here to fill our hungry souls Taste and see Amen. Let's give him praise. Thank you so much. You're dismissed. God bless.